Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 26th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. In two is uh, the political phoenix uh, that rose uh, from the ashes of a dispute in Sinn Féin over abortion. Frontbench TD and lifelong member Padre Tobin lost the party whip, finding himself in the wilderness for breaking the party line and voting against abortion legislation. In 2019, Tobin launched an all-island political party, sharing many of Sinn Féin's values on one hand, but distinctly different to Sinn Féin as a pro-life party on the other hand. That all human life should be protected. It states that no mother or child should ever be left behind. This weekend, Hain members met for the party's first Ordesh. These are our core values. I think these are fair, they're compassionate, they are common sense. And I believe that they're broadly shared uh, probably by the majority of Irish people. And yet no other political entity in this country holds those values in the same way that AIM2 does. And in my view, that makes AIM2 the most important political movement in this country by far. Peter Tobin gave an upbeat assessment of the way the party has been growing. In a very short time since our foundation, we've gathered 50,000 votes across the north and south. We've gone from six elected uh, representatives from Derry to Wexford. We've attracted over a thousand members and we've selected over 47 local area reps who are working in their local communities. We're polling about 4% currently in some of the opinion polls, a level which is on par with some of the other political parties who have many years on us and massive funding and also plenty of media exposure. And AIM2 has been growing impressively to an average of 1% in opinion polls in its short lifetime. And this weekend at 2% in the Red Sea Sunday Business Post tracker poll. And since we have been founded, we have been punching well above our weight. The founder of AIM2, Mead West TD, Peter Tobin, joins us now. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, what is uh, the state of play uh, as far as your concerned in terms of uh, the trajectory of AIM2. It was a good weekend for you and congratulations. Going from 1% to 2%, a very good weekend in that latest uh, poll for you. But how does that break down uh, across uh, the country? Is that a lot of support for Padre Tobin in Mead West? Uh, or will it result, do you think, in time into something that people can recognise 
as a, a broader church, more than just Petitot being, more than that dispute that took place uh, back in 2018 over uh, abortion and so on, uh, that this will be a real political party? Or to put all of that a, a, another way, uh, how would you see that 2% translate into doll seats? Well, first of all, um, I think the, the Ordette was a very successful Ordette in that we had uh, just under 300 delegates from all across the country gather and discuss uh, 112 uh, really good um, motions at our Ordette, which will be voted upon and become uh, party policy. We were addressed by uh, really good guests on a number of different issues. For example, Father Peter McVerry spoke to us about homelessness and housing. Uh, Danny O'Connell from the American AOH uh, spoke to us about Irish unity. And Professor Patricia Casey also spoke to us about mental health and the health service. In relation to developing a political party, it's been my objective um, for the last number of years to build a grassroots organisation first and foremost. Um, So I've spent an awful lot of time going around the country uh, holding town hall meetings uh, and creating common. And common are the branches uh, that we have in A2. And these are where you know, members gather locally and discuss local issues and get focused on local campaigns. And right now, we have about 60 functioning common around the state, um, about a 1,000 members in those local common. And it has been my objective that we have a real grassroots, membership-based organisation that is working locally uh, to build support for the party, but also to fix a lot of issues that are happening in people's lives. And we've selected about 47 local area reps so it's, it's worth reminding, I'm not just the only uh, elected rep in into. We have five councillors from Wexford to Tyrone to Cavan, uh, Meath and Derry. Um, and we also have selected 47 local area reps. So these are people who are of good character, mm-hmm. who are immersed in the local needs of people, uh, and they're fixing things in the local communities. And I, I would get calls now from a ride around the country, and people would say, Listen, Paddy, your 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 councillor in Cork is doing great work, and I think to myself, we don't have a councillor in Cork, but our local area reps are taking on that role and they're doing the work of councillors, and sometimes they're doing it in, in a better way than the elected reps. And on, on that basis, we have grown. And I know you, you mentioned the business post poll over the weekend, but some of the polls, for example, the the uh, Ireland uh, Daily Mail poll puts us up at around four uh, percent as well. And to be honest. That's a, a quite an amazing achievement for a political party that's not three years old, mm. that doesn't get state funding, and is equal in, in some polls now to the likes of people before profit, okay. uh, the Labour Party, uh, etc. Uh, and so, what does it mean? Uh, I mean, uh, you'd have a, an understanding of how that breaks down. Undoubtedly, a lot of the support is for you. You uh, always poll very well personally, uh, but uh, do you envisage getting more seats uh, if there was to be an election tomorrow how many TDs would you hope to return? Yes, yeah, so our strategy in this is first of all to build towards the next general election the next Stormont election the next Stormont election is only around the corner so uh, we're targeting at least two seats in Stormont in eight months time uh, East Derry Foyle and Fermanagh South Tyrone will be our strongest areas mm. there and uh, we're also targeting at least four seats in the next stall. So we're putting a special effort into uh, Cabin Monaghan, where Sarah O'Reilly was just about 2,000 votes off of seats, uh, into Cork Northwest, where we got really half a seat in, in the last general election, into Mayo, where we got a, a very significant vote as well, and the likes of Wexford and Limerick, uh, where we have very strong organisations. So while we are putting an effort in going right across the country, we know that we need to bring extra TDs into the doll. And there is a danger with small parties such as ourselves, if your vote is spread evenly across the country, 
it's hard to get that tipping point to get TDs elected. So that's why we're putting massive energy into those constituencies mm. to get some of those uh, across the line. Um, but I've no doubt as well, by the time the, the next local election comes, we'll be uh, in a shakedown for up to 20 council seats uh, around the country with the work rate uh, okay. that we're putting in at the moment. And that's the foundation then for, for growth. Uh, listen, I joined Sinn Féin when Sinn Féin were 2% mm. in the polls when most of the political analysts uh, didn't see an opportunity for that party whatsoever. But I do know that good organisation, good grassroots infrastructure, hard local community work pays dividends politically mm. and that's what we're about. I'll be talking to the American uh, political commentator Larry Donnelly a little bit later on in uh, the programme uh, who I think we'll be telling us uh, that uh, the party whip system in this country needs to be looked at and that members of political parties should on occasion be allowed to vote in line with their conscience uh, and that a vote of conscience should be plausible rather than a situation which is the one that I think all of the political parties uh, live by in this country whereby if you go against the party line you're out of the party regardless of everything else uh, and that was the genesis of A2 we uh, remember that your party was formed uh, p- without anybody wanting you to leave Sinn Féin it seemed as though Sinn Féin tried to do everything to accommodate you and you tried to do everything to stay in Sinn Féin but uh, because of the party whip because of the party's position o- on abortion uh, you had to part ways what would the A2 position be on a party whip system? Was just it's important to say that AIM2 is not Sinn Féin minus uh, their pro-abortion policy. It's, it's, AIM2 has a, a lot of different policies to Sinn Féin. We're not as hard left uh, on economic issues uh, as Sinn Féin at all. We're actually would be far more pro-local uh, enterprise uh, than that political party. We've also taken a different route with regards to COVID, uh, for example. So while Sinn Féin flipped and flopped back and forth over the last 18 months in relation to uh, whether or not you know restrictions and COVID passes shouldn't be put into place. Now, we were very clear that restrictions were necessary on some occasions, but uh, that the government was taking a uh, path that was w- an outlier in European terms uh, in relation to this. We were the first political party that called for an investigation into what happened in the nursing homes. And indeed, just at the Ordesh uh, gone by, okay. we called for booster shots to be provided to all uh, nursing uh, homes. Just talk to me um, about the whip for a minute because I do want to ask you about sorry. COVID. Just talk to me about co- uh, the party whip system. Yeah, I, I think the government, the, Ireland has a history of a, uh, it's a, it's a British import, to be honest, of a very, very strict whip system in this country, which means that uh, PDs are told to vote a certain way and uh, if they don't vote a certain way, they're out. Typically, in, in most Western democracies, um, people will be given some latitude. what's called issues of conscience. Uh, conscience. So, for example, abortion will be considered an issue of conscience. So would uh, euthanasia, etc. Um, but in Ireland, that's not the case. In Ireland, there is a view that if you don't vote in those ways, you're toast mm. uh, politically. And indeed, you know, um, I was benched in my previous political party for probably the last two years of my existence mm. in it, uh, etc. And, you know, in a functioning democracy, it is actually healthy that we, ha- we don't have lots of yes-men and yes, women in political parties. Okay. We actually have people who will challenge uh, the leadership and the the, uh, the common understanding of what's happening at the time. So, so, so you would take the same sort of approach that Fianna Fáil took uh, in relation to abortion that it would allow you would allow a vote of conscience on certain moral issues. For, 
for most moral issues, we would uh, allow a, a vote on, on uh, our conscience on most okay. moral issues. All right, talk now, to me about COVID because you were very critical of uh, the government's uh, response uh, to the virus and uh, the pandemic and so on. Uh, we've had a, a long weekend of people uh, out in bars and nightclubs having great fun by all accounts, uh, but a lot of concern about that uh, as well. Uh, the response appears to be that from next weekend, uh, that's if this public uh, this is published in time. Uh, people will need tickets uh, to uh, gain access uh, to certain venues. What do you make of that? Yeah. So first of all, there was, last week the government made a massive decision to the doll, and there was going to be no no uh, debate on it whatsoever. And like only for AIM two again, we forced a debate last week in the doll on the government's decisions. The mo- one of the most important things that's happening at the moment is that the uh, people who are living in uh, nursing homes are heading towards an immunity cliff. That means that the vaccines that they've had are starting to wane somewhat um, and we need to get a booster shot made available to people in nursing homes at all ages in nursing homes because sometimes we have residents who are under 65 years old and also the staff working at nursing homes. Now, I've been talking to people in nursing homes and they're crying out for this at the moment. That's the second most important issue. The third most important issue is that this government have refused to introduce antigen testing um, wholesale. So, you know, we, ha- we have this crazy situation where people are, you know, vaccinated but may have an illness. They can go into a hospitality sector, spread that illness to other vaccinated people, and those vaccinated people can get very sick. Um, and while in other European countries they have antigen tests, which basically works out whether the person mm. has an illness or not, and means you can circulate if you have no illness, and you're asked to hold back circulation in society if you have uh, the illness itself. So, again, AIM2 has been pushing very hard to see can we achieve um, that antigen test. My worry in this, and it's, it's quite stark now at the moment, that the government don't introduce antigen testing. We'll find the government will start moving back towards restrictions in the very near future. Mm. I actually think where the government's thinking is. Do you like the idea of tickets, though, for nightclubs and gigs? I don't actually. I want to see uh, nightclubs and gigs work normally and fairly because, first of all, those those sectors have been absolutely stuffed over the last uh, uh, two years. Yeah, I heard they were stuffed over the weekend with people. <laughs> yeah, but, but the problem is to see, like, if, if you have to have tickets, but this weekend was, was different because this weekend, actually, believe it or not, Michael, there was no law with regards to mm. uh, nightclubs and gigs this weekend. The law had lapsed. Uh, with, the, with the, the previous restrictions, but the government hasn't got the new law in place yet. So we have this really strange situation that there was actually no law governing the management of nightclubs uh, and pubs this weekend at all. Okay. Um, so next week it's going to change, obviously, with tickets. But the point is that most people who go to nightclubs do so in the spur of the moment. They do so in the crack that they were having mm. previously with their friends in the, in, in the pub. The idea that you're going to have to book you know, maybe 24 hours or more in advance uh, for a ticket is going to completely puncture that spontaneity which is part of, you know, the nightclub experience. And what we're saying is that the government are tying themselves up massive knots and all this really silly stuff, but they won't follow the European norms, the the successful European behaviour of antigen testing. Okay, strong strong criticism there. Briefly to conclude, in less than a minute, if you would, please, uh, talk to me about the protest uh, that will take place over the weekend. You mentioned uh, in your leader's speech uh, the concern that you have for the future of the emergency department in Avon and you're hoping to get a lot of people on the streets. Yeah, so the, the emergency departments in Avon and the ICU are going to be closed if the HSE and the government have their way. 
this is a life and death issue for the people of Meath. And the, 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 there are thousands of lives, in my belief, in the future that are dependent upon this unit. And I would really urge the people of Meath to come out in, in their thousands this Saturday at one o'clock. Uh, we're gathering at the Enterprise Centre in the Trim Road. I'm absolutely delighted uh, with the level of mobilisation that's happened already. GA clubs, soccer clubs, um, boxing clubs, uh, all the sporting organisations, business organisations, schools, the churches, they're all asking their members and, and supporters to come out uh, on the day. And if we can get 10,000 people onto the streets, I believe we will have an A&E and an ICU into the future. Okay, maybe we can talk to you again before the weekend uh, about that. Uh, but uh, we have to leave there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Patrick Tobin, the founder and leader of AIM2. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, Social Justice Ireland has uh, published a, a report into health inequalities across EU member states. It's the 13th uh, time that Social Justice has looked at uh, life across the different European countries. And this time round, it's reporting that unmet medical needs have jumped from 1 in 50 in 2019 to closer to 1 in 5 in 2020. Let's talk to Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice. Very good morning, Sean, good as always morning, to you. Uh, that's a, an incredible uh, increase. Uh, what's behind it all? Well, I think there's a, there was and has been a weakness uh, in uh, a lot of the healthcare systems across the European Union, uh, particularly uh, a growing uh, tendency for people at the lower end of income uh, to be left behind when decisions are being made and when uh, the, the resources are being allocated. Um, and I think what we've seen is that pre-existing health inequalities within the EU have been exposed uh, during the COVID time. And then not alone were they exposed, but they were actually deepened because there was a lot of pressure on the health system through the COVID period. But the the reality then is that vulnerable social groups uh, like poorer people and people at risk and people... um, uh, who are vulnerable in one way or another, they disproportionately suffer as a result of that. Mm. And that what we've seen is rising health inequalities. Now, this has to be situated within the, the context that at a, at a global level, Europe has one of the best uh, uh, systems for providing or the best trade uh, track record for providing health care. But within Europe, there's quite a lot of difference. And, with, uh, and for example, uh, in, in a country like Ireland, uh, there has been a, and is a deeply kind of um, embedded two-tier system. Mm. And uh, it's very much dependent on access to, uh, like, in, of having income to access at the top end. Okay. All right. Uh, And what about uh, those countries that provide universal health care? Some of uh, the Scandinavian countries uh, would provide health care, would they not, on an equal basis, regardless of your income, regardless of whether you have private health insurance or not? Well, there's some very interesting things in that because um, when you look at at those countries, what you find is uh, that not alone are they the ones who are providing universal access, but they're also... Some of the, they are also among the countries with the highest uh, total tax take uh, as a percentage of GDP, and not alone that, uh, but they have a, they have they are also among the most competitive in uh, the, the global economy. Mm. So uh, that that I think that's quite uh, remarkable in a way. Like ten countries 
uh, had total taxation ratios greater than the EU average. Now, the EU average is 40.2% of GDP. Now, Ireland, I know that I, I, there's, a, there's a, uh, one sort of circumstance that needs to be noted here. Uh, that is that uh, Ireland's GDP figures are inflated uh, because of the way we count the yeah, money tax, passing yeah. through uh, from uh, that isn't being taxed and so on. But at the same time, even accounting for that, Ireland's total uh, compared to the European average of 40.2% of GDP, ours is 22.7. That's we take 22.7% of GDP uh, as, as total tax take compared to 40.2 in other countries. And in those countries, the mm-hmm. highest is France. It takes 47.4. Almost half of all uh, its GDP goes in tax in one form or another. Denmark, Belgium, Sweden. Austria, mm. Finland, you see a lot of the, of the Nordic countries there, and they are countries that provide very good health systems. Is it a question of how it's paid for? Because, I mean, you get uh, treatment in a lot of those countries and you don't pay for it, but of course there's nothing for nothing, uh, and mm. uh, the uh, procedures are being paid for by the state through the taxes they collect. Is that the difference, that they're collecting tax and paying for healthcare for everybody rather than saying, uh, well, you can wait on that uh, if you have the time to wait, or you can pay for it yourself privately, or if you can provide private or afford private health insurance, as is the case here? I think that's a pretty accurate uh, description of it, Michael. Uh, What you have in effect is a situation in which uh, they decide that they're going to provide a universal one-tier healthcare system. Uh, Everybody has access, and they have access when they need it uh, and at the level that they need it. Uh, Now, uh, that costs money, as you say, uh, but they have decided that as a society, they're going to uh, pay for it as a society rather than individually, uh, and therefore they collect the tax to do that. Now, we're not just talking about income tax, we're talking about tax across the taxation across the whole mm. range of, of, of tax sources. But what happens then is that you don't get, when you have a universal system like that, you don't have a situation where the poor and the vulnerable and both those on low incomes are left behind. In Ireland, we take uh, a rather ridiculous approach to it in which we say basically uh, that uh, you know we will provide a basic service and after that people can pay for it but of course we don't uh, have uh, a great many poor to middle income people don't have the resources to access healthcare systems in that way to pay for for a, a, the second tier or access to the second tier if a, you like a, a lot of people do though because an awful lot of people Huge do. have private health insurance and the same people I'm sure will tell you that they don't want to pay more in tax but they are paying for their private health insurance because uh, they want to make sure that if they get sick uh, that they'll be treated uh, and they won't uh, be told well you have to wait a a year for a procedure that you could get tomorrow Uh, people will remember uh, Susie Long wasn't it who waited a year for a colonoscopy and died uh, during the waiting period Uh, while uh, if she had gone privately she could have been seen within 24 hours Uh, and there's no doubt about that and that's one of uh, the problems that has led to a lot of the discussion about Slauncha care and a single tier system in this country. But uh, are, are they not paying for it anyway? If they paid more in tax, would they need to buy private health insurance? They wouldn't. See, that's the point. Uh, 
say that basically if you had a situation like a universal healthcare system where people could access what they required uh, without having to go to a private system, then you'd have a one-tier healthcare uh, system in place uh, and everybody would have access uh, and they would have access when they needed it. You wouldn't have a situation where the waiting lists are very close to reaching a million mm. which is the situation in Ireland yep. at the moment. 14 years I think the consultants say it'll take to clear them. I know but like that is totally nonsensical system. We need to change that. Change it. We need to change it f- fundamentally so that we actually, so that people actually have access uh, where the, to to healthcare uh, when they need it, and that they don't have to wait for years and have situations like the Susie Long one that uh, that you actually uh, cited there, which is was like a disgraceful uh, situation that somebody dies while waiting uh, for for access to a service that what would have been available if it, if they, they were able to in a position to buy it in the, on, on, the, on the second tier, if you like. Now, the the, the bottom line in that is. Uh, I, I, I keep pointing out that Ireland has a low income problem. People uh, on low to middle incomes um, are finding themselves more and more left behind on a range of, of issues. And, and health is a good example. They can't access the, the, the health insurance that they would require to, main, to ensure that they could get access mm-hmm. into that second tier. So the result is they get left behind. The, the tragedy is that we, we don't have a government with a strategy to actually tackle that issue. We don't have any credible uh, uh, tackling of poverty, for example. Uh, we don't have a tack- uh, we don't have a credible uh, strategy of tackling the working poor okay. issue, mm-hmm. and. That what we're doing uh, around the sloan to care um, approach, uh, if sloan to care were seriously implemented, we would be well on the way towards a one-tier system, and we would have to put up the money to actually pay for it. Okay, that, would still, that would still keep our tax rate, a tax, total tax take, quite a distance before below the low European mm-hmm. average. We're clearly some, way, we're clearly some way, uh, way off that, Sean. I uh, have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, as always, for joining us on the More program. More than welcome, Thank as always. Thank That's you, uh, Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you were listening to us last week, you would have heard uh, the results of uh, the IBAL Litter League and uh, the disappointment that there was for County Mead because Navin came in 29th. Uh, and we asked Mead County Council to respond to this or to see if they had any comment on it uh, because there was one significant problem, it seems, and that's the area of St. Patrick's Park. Connor Horgan, spokesperson with IBAL, is on the line with us. Connor, you told us last week that Navin would have been in the top 10 if it wasn't for the problems at St. Patrick's Park, which brought it way down the list to 29th on the list. Uh, the response from Mead County Council to those comments was we are examining the judge's comments in respect of particular locations mentioned and we'll look at what steps can be taken to address the littering issues at such locations. What do you make of that? Well, I think um, I'd stand by my comment, Michael, that uh, there's a particular location here to blame. So I don't think the council needs to look at the spread of sites that were visited, they need to hone in on St. Patrick's Park. Like if, if I go back over past reports, which I've done this morning, um, the last three surveys that were conducted, St. Patrick's Park was found to be a grade D site. That's a litter black spot. 
it was the only litter black spot in the town. And otherwise, Navin is a clean town. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, it would have been a top 10 if it wasn't for that litter black spot. That was the case last year and the year before as well. In fact, if I go back to 2018, when we didn't survey St. Patrick's Park, Navin was fifth in our ranking of 40 towns and cities. So it's a shame that I'm on again because it's just one blot on the landscape. That's where Mead County Council needs to own its effort. Mm. Uh, and what do you make of the response uh, that they'll examine the problems? I, I take it in St. Patrick's Park because the question we put to them was pretty specific. Well, we'd like to see actions, obviously, because this isn't a new development and we've highlighted this for the past two years. And the mm. only reason we're highlighting it, Michael, isn't to bash St. Patrick's Park or the residents or the council. It's just to bring about improvement. That's the only reason we're on air. Um, and in some cases, now, this is a particularly stubbornly uh, bad area and probably probably unique in what we've come across across the country where you yeah. have this standout litter black spot in the midst of a clean town. But there are some fights time. that you can't win no matter what you're talking about and uh, you could argue that this is a losing battle because you had the same criticism last year and the council told us last year that they clean it up, it's littered again, they clean it up and there's all sorts of furniture then put back again, they clean it up and it's around and around in circles. Well, if that's it, like, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, the problem here, Michael, is dumping. It's not litter. And dumping is a very difficult issue to tackle, one that we're not tackling well in the country. It's covert and it's deliberate. And those two factors combined means it's very hard to find the culprits. But, you know, on other occasions, we've seen local authorities put in specific actions and communicate them to us. In fact, we've gone to meet local authorities who have said, look, you've toned in, you've, you've concentrated on a bad area here. Here's what we've done over the last year to clean it up. Mm. Not always successfully, but it is heartening to know that at least the focus is in the right place. And from that experience, Connor, what suggestions? question would you have for Mead County Council, given the experience that you have of all of this? Well, I suppose, look, it's, it's easy for me to say from my office here, Michael, but, you know, reaching out to the community is probably the best answer there. Um, regular cleanups are a must, and you're saying they're doing them, maybe so. Um, CCTV has some role to play. Dublin City Council have said they've had success with their name and shame campaigns, which are allied to CCTV. You may recall they got into some trouble over them where, where they took pictures of people uh, dumping and put the pictures up in public then mm-hmm. where the people could be just about recognised. Um, you know, identifying the source of the, of, the, of the litter is also another approach you can take. I, I'm not saying that we've, you know, that we've netted great results with those initiatives, but, the, you know, the community one is key. I don't think any community wants a littered environment. And if even you can provide special bins or arrange special amnesties or pickups of, of, of household items for a period, if we can keep the place clean for a period, we're on the right road. All right, Connor. We'll uh, see how they fare next year. But thank you indeed for joining us once again this year. That's Connor Horgan, spokesperson with IBAL. That's the Irish Businesses Against Litter. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, there was uh, much sadness, uh, no doubt, at uh, St. Patrick's uh, Church in Cullihanna over the weekend as uh, the anniversary mass 
for Paul Quinn uh, was held on Sunday. Let's uh, speak, to, speak to Stephen Breen, who's Crime Editor of The Irish Sun. And uh, a very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, it's 14 years on since uh, the terrible murder of uh, Paul Quinn, but there have been developments in this case. Yeah, well, this is a very much an ongoing and active investigation by the Gardaí in Craigmacross under Superintendent Gary Walsh. As part of their investigation, in recent weeks, they have interviewed an individual who claims that he was close to the vicinity, close to the shed where Paul Quinn was brutally murdered. But the guards have also spoken to a number of individuals um, who they hadn't spoken to before uh, to see if they can shed some light and provide some information to the sister inquiries. But uh, also as well, like the, the, the guards, when they, did, they undertook a, a review of the original investigation and they identified a, a further 300 lines of inquiry and as part of that inquiry you now have uh, Forensic Science Ireland um, examining uh, a number of exhibits that were seized as part of the original investigation so they're looking at new technology, new DNA technology in the hopes that it may yield some answers but very much a very uh, dedicated and ongoing investigation. All right. Uh, there were a lot of uh, people involved in this. Remind us of what happened on uh, the 20th of October 2007. Well, well Paul uh, Quinn was lured to a shed in Castlevania. Uh, it's an isolated shed. I've been there myself with Paul's father, Stephen. And when he was there, he was uh, attacked by at least, uh, the guards would say, at least 10 individuals You know, who were armed with baseball bats, iron bars, cudgels, uh, other implements. And he suffered a horrendous death, a, a terrible beating. Every bone in his body below his, his neck was, was broken. In the incident, he, he later lost his fight for life. It was a particularly brutal incident, which shocked many in the South Armada earlier. But, but since then, um, you know, for 14 years, his parents, Breach and Stephen, have been fighting a campaign for justice. They, they, they've raised uh, awareness of, of the case uh, with, with governments in, in both jurisdictions here in Ireland. And, uh, they really are just desperate for answers. You know, they they still talk about the nightmare that they've endured for the last fourteen years. They they talk about how they would see people who they believe were involved in Paul's killing every day in the city my earlier area. But this, despite the appeals over the years, despite their campaign for justice, you know, and despite the, and the numerous people being arrested, no one has ever been charged with the brutal murder. But that's the point, isn't it? I, I mean, um, they're looking for justice. I, I think they know, Breach and Stephen believe, uh, they know mm-hmm. who was responsible for their son's death. Uh, and there were so many people involved in uh, a relatively rural part of uh, the country that it's well known locally who was involved in it. Uh, but I take it that people are afraid to come forward with information. Yeah, it relates to that. There's no question that since uh, Paul's murder, there has been a wall of silence. And in the, over the 14 years, you know, the Guardi have been chipping away and trying to break that wall of silence and encourage people to come forward. But, you know, when I spoke to Breeds and Stephen Quinn on numerous occasions, you know, they do talk about how, you know, how do the people who were involved in this incident, you know, sleep at night? You know, do they hear their son's screams? Uh, and what was really a, a barbaric uh, incident, mm. and they are also concerned that you know there there are if there were ten people involved in this incident involved in the attack, there were also others who were involved in acting as spotters and mm. providing a, a getaway, a, a cover up, and logistics. So there are so many people who would have knowledge of the of this, but yet no one has been brave enough to come forward. Uh, in, in terms of you know telling the Gardaí uh, what they know, but uh, when I spoke to them, um, and, and given what happened, 
I'm sorry, Steve. Given right. what happened, given what happened, you can understand why people would be afraid. I mean, Paul really met a, a brutal death, didn't he? He was yeah. beaten to a pulp; every bone in his body was broken, and his ears were cut off. Yeah, pe- people are obviously uh, terrified. But what we've seen in other cases, when you look at the Adrian Donoghue case, you know, you had an element of uh, organised crime and intimidation relating to Aaron Brady, the man convicted of Adrian Donoghue's case. Mm. So in that case, it did give the Quinn family hope because people did come forward and people did cooperate with investigators. So you know, the, the Quinn family are adamant, and the guards would say the same as well. If people do come forward, they can, can provide information on an anonymous basis. They, it would be treated in a very sensitive and dignified manner. So, and help will be provided to anyone who can just, you know, give the guardian a little bit of information that can help, you know, solve this uh, the, this mystery of 14 years because it's a, a very long time for a great family to go through, knowing that there are people in the community who committed this appalling incident and yet they're still walking free. And people have to live with their involvement in this terrible murder or what they witnessed uh, and uh, as you say uh, some people are finding it difficult to live with that and suffering from depression as a result Yes I spoke to uh, Paul's family you know that's what, what they indicated that they had obviously they have a lot of support in the South Armagh community they've had a lot of support from people across Ireland and across the world and uh, you know we have heard in, in recent times there are a number of individuals who were believed to be involved in the incident which led to Paul's murder, uh, who were struggling with depression, who were turning to alcohol, and obviously their, their, maybe their conscience was getting the better of them. And as the years pass, you, know, you see it, you know, relationships change among these uh, individuals, you know, what happened, you know, 14 years ago in terms of their relationship yeah. status mightn't be the same now. So the Quinn family say that they often, you know, meet these individuals on the street and they would just put their heads down and, and walk along. But they're just hoping that, you know, finally, after all this time, uh, you can have someone to come forward, but also the DNA analysis of the exhibits may also need some answers as well. So it's it's very much an mm. active and ongoing investigation. Okay. You've followed this, obviously, uh, for a long time. It's 14 years on since uh, Paul Quinn was murdered. Uh, why do you believe he was murdered? Had it anything to do with laundering diesel? Yeah, well, the family would say that the, that the reason uh, Paul was murdered was because, uh, it's been widely uh, reported on as well, as that simply because he was involved uh, in an altercation with the son of a leading IRA figure. Um, uh, there was also a suggestion, you know, from Republicans at the time that, that Paul was involved in criminality. Paul's family had denied that, and, and they want, you know, senior Sinn Féin representatives to tell the family and to, you know, make a public statement that Paul wasn't involved in criminality. And the simple reason that, that that he was killed was because of this incident involving a senior IRA figure's son. Paul got the better of him, uh, and as you know, at that time, uh, in 2007, you know, Ma, you had a lot of um, uh, strong uh, support for the provisional IRA in that area, and you know they they rode through fear in many communities there. So what you did have then is uh, individuals are here using the Republican name or connected to Republicans. They of course denied any involvement in it. They, they blamed it on. Uh, a criminal element um, in South Armagh. So that's where this culture of secrecy comes into play, where, where people are afraid to come forward because of maybe some previous paramilitary connection. But Paul's family are adamant that the only reason that he was targeted in this brutal way is because he got the better of an IRA man's son in a fight outside a local chippy. Okay. And do you think uh, that the guards are close to getting the evidence that they need to secure a prosecution? I don't think the guards have stopped, even when you have the new superintendent in, in Triton Cross, Gary Walsh, even his predecessors as well, 
have worked tirelessly in this case. You've had the Crimson family saying that they're never going to give up hope. You have the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, as well, giving a commitment to the family. He met with them in August. He also visited the site where Paul was killed. So uh, I think with the advances in technology, with the fact that new people have come forward, there's, there's every hope and uh, every realisation that hopefully you know, someone will be held to account for this. Okay, Stephen, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us, uh, following on from the anniversary mass over the weekend and uh, the 14th anniversary of uh, the murder of Paul Quinn. Uh, That's uh, Stephen Breen, who's crime editor of The Irish Sun. Now, a couple of emails uh, that uh, have come to us, uh, one from Laura, and thank you indeed, Laura, for getting in touch. It follows our latest discussion, I think it was with Fergus O'Dowd, TD, about Brownstown Wood. If you've been listening to the programme in recent times, you'll know that uh, people are waiting uh, and waiting and waiting for the keys to their homes uh, that they paid deposits for uh, earlier in the year, should have moved into in September. It seems as though they won't be able to move in till February at the earliest uh, because of a problem with connecting those homes to electricity. The ESB says that it's because of site safety issues uh, and they're ready to connect the houses uh, whenever those Issues are cleared up. Uh, The developer uh, says uh, that the problem lies with ESB. People waiting on their new houses are caught in the middle. And Laura says she purchased a house in February. She paid her deposit in full. The builder has also taken money uh, that uh, she secured under the Help to Buy scheme. uh, And the mortgage has expired on her. It's incredible. This is the situation that people have. Uh, She said they had to apply for an extension, which they did get, thankfully. Uh, She also says that she hasn't heard any updates from the developer on a timeline. I've emailed numerous times and I got nothing back from anyone. And Laura goes on to say that the situation is extremely stressful on a young couple buying their first home as first All the delays were fine with us, as we understand that that sort of stuff happens from time to time. But for us to be in the situation now and no information, it's terribly frustrating. That's lack of information is the most frustrating part of all. And she says uh, that's uh, just uh, my situation. Thank you indeed, Laura, for getting in touch with us and sharing uh, the situation that you're in with us. Another email uh, comes to us uh, about driving uh, tests, and uh, this is uh, from Valerie Murray in Drogheda. And uh, she says, can you look at, at the waiting times in Drogheda? My son needs his licence for work in the construction industry. He waited 16 months to get a driver theory test because of COVID and the constant cancellations in uh, the theory test centre in Drogheda. He now faces a wait until next April for his driving test because the Drogheda Test Centre has the longest wait time in Ireland. It's ridiculous and something that needs to be addressed. Ireland appears to be the most expensive and has uh, the longest wait time to get a full licence and uh, this puts Irish workers at a big disadvantage compared to other countries. Thank you, Valerie. Uh, We have asked the Road Safety Authority uh, to make a comment on that and uh, we hope to return that to that uh, on uh, the programme tomorrow. But thank you indeed uh, for making contact with us. Uh, another text then to us uh, from uh, somebody who says, uh, can you tell me or your listeners uh, what your opinion on scramblers and quad bikes tearing up and down the roads is? Uh, that's uh, John in Orristown. Uh, thanks, uh, John. Um, 
I'm sure there's problems there by the sounds of that. I take it that there's serious problems there by the sounds of that. And I think by the sounds of it, I'm just trying to read between the lines. I'd be on your side and I'd imagine most people are, but people are very welcome uh, to tell us what they think about uh, scramblers and so forth if uh, they are causing problems. Uh, Davy has been in touch and he says, littering isn't just a problem in me, it's a problem all over the country and more needs to be done to prosecute those who are found littering. The penalties at the moment are not enough of a deterrent and that's why the problem is continuing. If there were on-the-spot fines, maybe a couple of thousand euro at a, a go, then people wouldn't be long about cleaning up after themselves. A tougher approach is the only way of truly stamping out this problem. Thank you indeed, Davy, for uh, your call to the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the two carbon budgets uh, published uh, yesterday. 4.8 reduction in emissions for the first five years each year and 8.3% each year for the second five years running from 26 to 2030. Let's uh, speak uh, to Tim Cullinan, who's uh, the president of the Irish Farmers Association. A very good morning to you, Tim. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this report morning, says uh, approximately 93% of Irish methane emissions come from livestock-based agriculture, which are particularly hard to mitigate without changing output levels. How can those levels be changed? Yeah, I suppose, first of all, Michael, obviously, you know, this is extremely challenging for farmers. And, uh, you know, the reported um, target or ceiling, as they're called now, that uh, agriculture will receive is a reduction of 21%, between 21 and 30%. Um, so, obviously, massive challenge there. And, I suppose, how do we do that? I suppose, first of all, farmers have been doing quite a lot already to adopt into new systems. You know, we have the Chagas Mac curve by... Um, different ways of applying uh, organic fertiliser with mm-hmm. the low and slurry spreading using protected uh, urea which is uh, releasing less ammonia into the atmosphere and uh, obviously we're working closely with Chagas on the science that is evolving as we speak so by using vaccines and in-feed um, products that we can feed to animals that will reduce the amount of uh, methane uh, coming from the bovines yeah. and obviously the biogenic methane as well, which was agreed in the program for government that this um, methane has to be needs to be treated differently and how it's accounted for because obviously it's a short life, life cycle gas so that um, stays in the atmosphere for approximately a 10-year period and you know where you are not increasing the number of animals that uh, obviously the amount of methane will not increase either. Mm. So, you know, it's working on all of those measures is how we're going to um, com- achieve and and, and, and and then what? Because 93% of methane is coming from livestock and this report does recognise uh, that animal diet additives and genetics are currently being investigated but it does say that that's not uh, enough and that only small reductions can be achieved uh, in uh, that uh, approach and they say that larger actions to achieve technical mitigation and actions to reduce livestock agricultural activity with reductions in beef and or dairy activity contributing increases increasing shares of the reductions are needed yeah look um i i don't believe that is the case as i say you know the proper working on here is you're right the current 
uh, where science is currently, but obviously you know, where, where science is going. And obviously there's a lot of advances coming there. Mm. I think that's important. And I suppose, look, the other area here, Michael, we need to be careful around as well is, you know, what we're doing here is this is about reducing uh, you know, the, the climate from heating up on a world, you know, right across the world. Mm. And uh, we are, I suppose, if you look at the dairy sector, we have the most efficient, best way of producing uh, dairy products here in this island. So you know, growing grass, converting that grass into into dairy products. Mm. And so we have Aranua and exporting those products right across the world. And, um, in, and we're the fourth or fifth best at producing beef. And we have to be careful here to know where I'm going here with carbon leakage. If we don't produce the food here, mm. well, obviously we'll be produced in a country that's way less carbon efficient. And, you know, at the end of the day, you will, we will do nothing for the climate. And, you know, we have to acknowledge as well that the world population is growing and continues to grow. And we need to be very, very careful with all of this to ensure so that we can feed all of the people right around the world, not just here in Ireland, obviously, but we are a country that has been always part of that. And I think we need to be. And I suppose the other, the other area there is, so we can and... Minister Ryan always referred to us as being part of the solution. And, you know, we're hearing again this morning, Michael, that uh, we may have a shortage of gas to supply this country before the year is out. Mm. And we may have a shortage in generating electricity. And we're talking about we might have enough power to power up our homes during the peak winter period. And um, we've been, for years... um, negotiating with governments, explaining so around the whole area of renewable energy and in particular now biomethane. So we, we can produce uh, transport fuel from the, the, for the slurries that are produced from our animals. And I think we need to look at all of those areas as well because you know, if we're not importing uh, fuel mm. into the country, there's a saving there as well and we, we will be able to mitigate one against the other. The problem is is that this requires immediate action and what's being done at the moment is insufficient according to this report to leave agriculture within the core targets set out in these budgets. Yeah, well my point is uh, I believe we can achieve the 21%. Um, we like already we have sat down with um, Chagas and, and, and discussed all of this as late as last week with them. They did, uh, Frank O'Mara, who was the new director of Chagas, gave a report to our council and clearly demonstrated with uh, the number of animals that we have in the country at the moment that if we, um, if we use all of the measures that is available at the moment, and you're right, obviously, the measures that science is evolving that are coming, mm. that we can achieve a 21% uh, in in this period uh, to reduce methane, and this is about you know it's not we 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 should not be looking at reducing animals here. What we are looking at is reducing the emissions. You know, I think this is very important mm. that that doesn't get lost in the debate as well. Yeah, and, and that's what the report says. It's the output, but how do you do that? And uh, there are these things like diet uh, and uh, additives and so on that uh, may do that. But in time, because we don't have the time, we're in this situation now where you have to look for alternatives. And that's what uh, this report is also saying, uh, that without finding alternatives, you're going to have a problem. It's going to result in reduced incomes and lower agricultural output. Yeah, and, 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 and look at that, and, and already, you know, you talk about um, 
farmers' incomes. And, you know, we're having a serious debate around cap reform at the moment and the measures that are there. And that in itself is going to impact on farmers' incomes. And, look, I have to say to the farmers, go back to where I started here, farmers have been doing a lot on this already, are adopting the measures that are being put forward by Chagas, our, our state research centre. We are, and we believe that by... Uh, complying with those measures and with uh, the, the, the way the science is evolving. I suppose if you look at it, if you just look at what has happened with the pandemic and last year we were able to, do, the world was able to develop a vaccine within months because when you had collaboration by all the scientists right across the world, I believe now we wouldn't have had it uh, prior to now, but I think there is, there is serious collaboration now between all the scientists in different countries coming together and we will find a solution to this. Like One of, one of the pieces of research that Chagas have completed is that uh, bovines, Certain bovines now produce up to 30% less methane. And you know, that is very encouraging in itself. So I was on uh, down at the Marine Research Centre down in Bantry during the summer where they are developing products from seaweed that also will help reduce the amount of uh, methane coming from cows. And obviously the biogenic methane, how that is accounted for as well. That mm. All of this has to come together and we can achieve our target of a reduction of between 21 and 30%. Yeah. But Michael, this what is would, very what, what, what would that do to the price of uh, meat, though? Yeah, well, well the, the, this is the argument. We're mm. being asked to do all of this, and I think we do need to have a conversation around it. If, if, if farmers are doing a lot more to protect the environment, well, then there needs to be a, re- a reward here as well, because, you know, as we speak... Like producing food is, is so without subsidies, it, 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 it's a loss-making exercise. Mm. So we do need to have a proper discussion around if we're going to have um, food produced, and which we're going to have mm. you know, with less emissions, well then somebody's going to have to pay the price for this. Yeah, well, what would that mean for a farmer, though? Would it mean buying seaweed and feeding cattle in sheds rather than letting them out in the land? No, 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 we have to. I think the one thing we have here in Ireland is you know, our grass-based system is one of the most efficient in the world. And if we move away from that, well, obviously, you're going to create more emissions because you, you'll have tractors drawing in grass and drawing out organic fertiliser. So that, that in itself will not help the emissions. I think it's very, very important. We market our produce right across the world, so on the back of orange and green, by turning grass into dairy products and into meat products. I think that's an advantage we have over any other country in the world. And it's absolutely essential and critical that we maintain that advantage going forward. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you, though, as always, for joining us today. That's Tim Cullinan, who's uh, the president of uh, the Irish Farmers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's go to Galway uh, to speak uh, to law lecturer at NUI Galway, Larry Donnelly, who's also a political columnist with uh, the journal.ie. Good morning to you, Larry, and thanks uh, for joining us uh, once again on the programme. Indeed, many people will know you as a, a commentator on American politics here and indeed right across the country, regularly heard on the airwaves and seen on TV. You're joining us today, though, to talk about your new book, The Bostonian Life 
in an Irish-American political party. Uh, and it's a great book, by the way. If people are wondering what it's about, uh, maybe I, I could read a paragraph from it uh, that uh, you've written, which I, I think describes it very well, because you say, I don't think about it very much, yet it is quite something that my family left the west of Ireland and did very well in Boston, and I have made the reverse journey. As my father used to remind me, your grandmother would be praying for you to come to your senses and questioning your sanity if she knew you were back at in Galway but Ireland has been my land of opportunity and uh, you've certainly done well here and uh, maybe we'll hear a little bit more about uh, that last sentence uh, as we talk through uh, some of uh, the pages in uh, this book Uh, but it is a story that goes from Galway to Boston and back again. That's for sure Michael and thanks for that really nice introduction. It it, it is uh, my story, I think, one that's uh, that's rather unique uh, in terms of the, the journey that I've made. Uh, but as you say, for me, Ireland has been a, a land of great opportunity, both in terms of uh, my professional life at, at NUI Galway, also in my uh, in my avocation, as you say, commenting and writing on all things political. Uh, and again, politics, I think it shines through in the book. Politics is what really animates me mm. uh, and always has and always will. Uh, and also personally, I mean, I, I miss the love of my life. We have two wonderful children and we have uh, a great home and, and private life as well as everything else. So uh, I really couldn't have asked for anything better than what uh, Everything Island has given to me. It really struck me as well how much you love uh, commenting in the media and being on the airwaves. Uh, and uh, I think the first time you were on uh, radio, uh, you were... Uh, very, very nervous uh, about it, but it, it's almost commonplace, you know. You're a very familiar voice at this stage. Yeah, it really it really kicked off from there. And I mean, one of the things I say in the book is, uh, you know, again, referring back to this land of opportunity narrative, uh, in the United States, uh, Boston Irish lawyers with an affinity to the Democratic Party and a liking for politics are more dime a dozen than, than diamond in the rough. Uh, and really, it did go from that very first interview uh, on RTE with Mary Wilson, who was then presenting Drive Time. Uh, it really started from there. And uh, fortunately, I acquitted myself reasonably well. And, you know, it, it's gone on from there. And one of the things I, I say, Michael, is that uh, people probably know my politics, but one of the things I, I always strive to do mm. is to present both sides. And, you know, if I were to make a critique of um, the media er- everywhere outside the United States, it is that sometimes uh, I don't think those on the opposite side of the aisle, that is Republicans and conservatives, uh, I sometimes don't think that they get a fair shot or, or, or alternatively, uh, it's not well explained why so many Americans do favor the Republicans and do favor, for instance, Donald Trump. Uh, and one of the things I really try to do um, is try to explain that and also try to make the point that uh, not all of these people, are, you know, are cavemen or evil or anything like that. Um, they just see things and they see the world and they see politics quite differently. That doesn't mean I agree with them, mm. uh, but I do understand where they're coming from. And I suppose that's natural for me because... Uh, even though I am a Democrat, I'm very much in the middle of the political spectrum. You wouldn't call, you wouldn't confuse me uh, with the left winger just as much as you wouldn't confuse me with a right winger. Okay. I thought I knew your politics, uh, but uh, I was a, a little bit uh, amazed uh, reading uh, the Bostonian life in an Irish-American political party. There were some things that I learned. I learned Larry Donnelly's a staunch Catholic. Uh, you have this relationship with Galway, uh, which began there with your grandparents who moved to Boston uh, and the success that they had and indeed uh, the start of political life uh, for the Donnellys uh, and then you returning back to Galway. Uh, I learned uh, that uh, you'd be 
uh, inclined to vote for Fianna Fáil. Uh, and as we always knew, you're a Democrat. Uh, but you stood as a Republican candidate in 1997, apparently. Yeah, yeah, this was my ver- version of teenage rebellion. Uh, as, as you know, you know, my family would have been very involved in democratic politics since they emigrated. My, my great uncles were Boston City Councilors. One of them went on to be Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, Attorney General of Massachusetts. My uncle, Brian Donnelly, who many listeners will know uh, from his Donnelly visa program, was a United States congressman for many years and later Bill Clinton's ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, so they were all very much rooted mm. in the Democratic Party. Um, however, I, I, uh, I, I rebelled. And the reason I did was actually down to them. As disgusted as they were at me for joining the other side, uh, there was an awful lot of complaining uh, about the distance that sprung up between the National Democratic Party and what some of the leading Democrats, in particular Senator Ted Kennedy, said on things like the, the cultural issues that I discussed in the book, uh, and also the, the issue of forced busing to desegregate Boston's public schools in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, a policy that might have had noble intentions but was carried out in a gross and inequitable and unjust manner. Um, and that really got a lot of Democrats angry with the party. And my, the likes of my father mm. uh, never stopped complaining about the Democrats and how they'd moved so far to the left and he didn't recognize the party anymore. Uh, and I said, well, you know, you're right. I, I don't recognize it either, so I'm going to go to the other side. Um, they were appalled that I had done so because they were they were committed to staying within uh, and fighting those battles, and they continued to do so. Yeah. Uh, and I, re- I gravitated back towards the Democratic Party after that misguided youth, and I think um, it was down to me getting some life experience and realizing that uh, not everyone had had life as easy as I had. Uh, and that the Democratic Party, at the end of the day, and I say it over and over again, it might be trite, but it's true, and it is that one party stands for people uh, who work with their hands for a living and live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and that always has been, in my view, always will be the Democratic Party, despite my frustration with it sometimes and their frustration. Too. OK, well, you know, that's your party and people will say that about uh, where uh, their political um, uh, roots are as such. And it's often the case, but quite often then there's a, a problem uh, because uh, there are moral issues and people want to vote with their conscience and so on. But the party whip doesn't allow for that. I told Patter Tobin earlier in the programme today that... I'd be speaking to you about the party whip uh, because it's something that went uh, against him as a a lifetime member of uh, Sinn Féin and uh, when it came to abortion legislation he voted against the party line and found himself out in the wilderness and this is something you believe shouldn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think Pat Ochovine is a case uh, in point of uh, one of one of the things I think is really wrong with Irish politics. I should say there's lots of Irish politics that is vastly preferable uh, to the politics I grew up with in the United States. But I do think the operation of the whip system is crazy. I mean, does anybody really think that Sinn Féin as a party is better off without somebody like Pat Ochovine, who's an extremely capable, articulate, committed uh, politician. Whether you agree with his politics or not, I don't think you could take that away from him. Uh, I think Sinn Féin is all the poorer uh, for losing Patatobin, especially when you consider on the abortion issue. Um, they're, rather two side, they're rather two sides of the same coin when you consider what they've done in the North as, as compared with down here. Um, but just the way I sum it up with the whip system is this. And political scientists, some of whom are my friends, will tell me there's all sorts of practical difficulties that would happen. The country would be ungovernable, et cetera, et cetera. But let me just put it to you bluntly. What other organization in the year 2021 demands fidelity, demands that thinking people agree on each and every single issue, on each and every single vote, and if you dare step out of line once, you're gone? 
to me, that's objectively crazy. Okay, I think in your book you say that uh, you've voted uh, for different political parties at, at different times for different reasons, uh, but you'd have been predisposed to uh, voting for Fianna Fáil. Uh, but you say that there's no way back for Fianna Fáil, uh, that uh, it's Sinn Féin and Fine Gael in terms of the future of Irish politics. Well, I think I'd say that that's arguably one scenario, and that's the, you know at, at, at that may be the likely scenario at, at this point. But I don't think that you can count uh, Fianna Fáil out necessarily. Uh, if you look back, for instance, around 2002, uh, an awful lot of people were counting Fianna Gael out and saying that it was the end of the road for them. So I think it's premature to count Fianna Fáil out. But certainly, the party has a struggle on its hand in terms of figuring a way forward. There's an awful lot of discontent within the party with, with, with Michal Martin, but that's largely because Michal Martin has a very, very difficult task. Uh, I think we know where his political heart is. I think we know that he's more progressive, yet he is dealing with a membership that is considerably, especially on social issues, that is considerably more conservative and that he can't afford to lose. Indeed, uh, some of those, I would say, have gone on to Patatobin Van too, um, but he can't leave them behind either, so it's a very tight rope. Uh, he needs to walk. And I think the party is going to have to decide where it wants to be and where it wants to go uh, in future. So, yeah, I mean, right now, uh, things are looking rather bleak. Uh, but, you know, again, politics can change very, very quickly. And as I say in the book, um, Sinn Féin and Fine Gael uh, are benefiting from uh, a myriad of factors, Sinn Féin in particular on the housing issue, which they have taken ownership of. That won't be so easy when they get into government. Uh, and I think Fine Gael has benefited greatly because it has a wealth of talent. It has a wealth of really good, capable media performers who the public identify with and who have captured the prevalent zeitgeist at the moment. So uh, the future is, is complex. It's not easy to say, but certainly at the moment, uh, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin, for their own reasons, uh, like this idea of it's a one-on-one match between the two of them. Okay, well... Uh, things change sometimes quicker than they do at other times uh, and certainly over the last couple of decades uh, there's been an awful lot of uh, change, sudden change really in uh, this country socially and uh, we've seen the introduction of uh, abortion, same-sex marriage uh, and uh, the idea of a citizens' assembly. Uh, you've been pretty involved in politics I, I think uh, in terms of the vote on the Shannon in particular, but you'd like to see a Citizens' Assembly on the idea of reuniting Ireland or how to go about doing that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Citizens' Assembly, while it was widely lampooned and ridiculed by some uh, in the run-up to the, the referenda on, on the, the two big issues that you've just mentioned, the Citizens' Assembly was actually a very worthwhile exercise. And even though a lot of cr- critics, especially those uh, on the right, uh, really lamented them and said that they were, you know, they were out of step, et cetera. They were remarkably indicative of where the country as a whole uh, was. And I, what I like about the Citizens Assembly is you have those committed individuals, you know, who go to all those meetings, who participate in all the deliberations, uh, and then come back into their communities and share that, that experience. Uh, I think, you know, when we're talking about the future of this island, make no mistake, this is uh, the, the most complicated question that might ever we might ever face on this island. Uh, I think the idea of a deliberative process where people from all communities, both sides of the border, uh, are brought together and hammer out all of this stuff, because there are huge implications uh, to to all this at every level conceivable, uh, I think the Citizens' Assembly might be an ideal vehicle, uh, at least to kick-start 
uh, discussions about what the future on this country is going to uh, of this island is going to look like. Okay, uh, said at the outset, uh, quoted from your book uh, that you regard this as your land of opportunity. It's a phrase that's often used or usually used uh, in reference uh, to the United States. Uh, but you're making the point uh, that your boys can grow up in this country and get educated and finish their education debt free, uh, which is not uh, the case in America. You obviously love living in this country, and you obviously love your family uh, and uh, people may be surprised uh, to know that uh, you've uh, more links to RTE than the one that you mentioned earlier <laughs> yeah yeah my, my 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 wife who I met at, uh, at a party in Galway uh, was coming up on 14 years ago now uh, is Eileen Whelan the, the newsreader um, and you know as you say we have two boys Eileen had a son when, when we met Sean who I've, I've since adopted uh, and then now we have uh, we have Larry Oak uh, who's uh, enjoying his midterm break at the moment um, and we have a, a wonderful life and of course you know, one of the questions I have been asked you know is would you ever consider moving back to uh, the U.S. and the, the frank answer is I couldn't do so unless uh, unless I had an awful lot of money or a job offer that was going to pay me huge money because um, access to higher education in the United States is prohibitively expensive. Uh, and I think that that's a shame. I think it's a profound shame. And it begs the question as to why other countries, just about every other country in the Western world at least, uh, can facilitate uh, access to uh, higher education without crippling graduates with staggering levels of debt. Uh, I don't understand why that can't be done in the United States. Uh, and that's why when some people say America is the land of opportunity, kind of unthinkingly, uh, I do then say to them, well, um, you know, look, look at the cost of education in, in higher education in Ireland or anywhere else in Western Europe and compare it to my alma mater, which is a great institution. But I believe it's $67,500 for wow. one year now, which okay. is just staggering. OK, well, it's a, a great read, Larry. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think uh, if uh, people do read your book, uh, they'll realise uh, very quickly uh, that uh, it's uh, the thoughts of uh, a shrewd political mind. Uh, before you leave us, uh, should uh, politicians in Galway be looking over their shoulder? <laughs> you know, I say what I say in the book is that, look, I'd, I'd never close the on politics. Uh, you know, if the timing and the circumstances were correct, uh, I would give it every consideration uh, because, again, I, I believe passionately in politics. I believe politics can help people. Uh, and I think I have something to contribute. So uh, leaving it at that, uh, I, I just would say that I'd never close the door on politics. Spoken like a true politician. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's good to talk to you as always. And the Bostonian Life in an Irish Political Party by Larry Donnelly is published by Gill Books. And our thanks to Larry Donnelly for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Gardaí are investigating and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Patrick Gill joins us from Trim Station for this week's report and we're going to begin in Dundalk last Friday where a hit and run occurred and obviously you're hoping that somebody can help identify who was driving the car. Yes indeed Michael and good morning to yourself and indeed your listeners. So yes, Guardian Dundalk are investigating a hit and run incident that occurred on the Armagh Road Dundalk County Loud on Friday morning last, the 22nd of October. Now, a female pedestrian was struck by a vehicle that failed to remain at the scene. Uh, she did suffer non-life-threatening injuries as a result of the accident. Okay, to Trim next, uh, and uh, another collision, this time between a van and a cyclist. Yes, so Guardian Trim are investigating a serious road traffic collision on the 19th of October last. 
Uh, the incident occurred on the Navin Road near the entrance to Lackanash Estate, so that's the, the main trim Navin Road. The male cyclist did sustain serious injuries and he currently remains in hospital. So Gardaí and Trim are repeating for any witnesses or motorists with dash cam footage or who may have been on that road between the hour of 3.45 and 4pm to contact Trim Garda Station on 046-948-1540. Next to the theft of a, a ride-on lawnmower in Trim. Yes, so this took place between the 17th and 19th of October last, so that's a Sunday afternoon and a, and a Tuesday afternoon. So we're just Guardian Trim are also appealing for information regarding the theft of a green and yellow John Deere ride on lawnmower from a property on the Athby Road, uh, as I mentioned, between Sunday evening last, the 17th, and Tuesday evening, the 19th of October 2021. And so anyone that may have noticed any suspicious activity, uh, noticed a particularly the distinguishable green and yellow John Deere ride on lawnmower, please contact Trim Garda Station, on 046-948-1540. Next to a burglary in Hartstown that occurred over the weekend. Yes, so Guardian Kells are investigating a burglary in Hartstown, Clammellan, between Saturday afternoon, the 23rd, and Sunday afternoon, the 24th of October last. A residential property was broken into and a sum of cash was taken. And anyone who may have any information or witnessed any suspicious activity during this time to please call Kells Garage Station on 046-9280820. Okay, the dark winter nights are upon us. Uh, some advice, first of all, to do with home security. Yes, Michael. So on Garage Econa would encourage you to lock up, light up this winter to keep your home safe. So Thursdays and Fridays between the hours of 5pm and 11pm are the times most likely for a break-in to occur. So whether you are at home or going out, remember to turn on some lights, use timer switches, lock all doors and windows, windows, use an alarm and store keys away from windows and letterboxes and please we encourage the public not keep any large amounts of cash or jewellery in the house. And if you are going out, be seen on the roads. Yes, yes, absolutely Michael. Unfortunately the time the uh, time of year is in it, things are getting darker a lot quicker and indeed people are more inclined to go out and walk and cycle in the area. So it's important to remember that you, if you are indeed going out cycling or walking to be safe, be seen. So that includes always ensuring that your luminous clothing such as your high-vis vests, your fluorescent armbands, belts and all other personal protective equipment are worn at all times and if you are walking or cycling, please try and plan your route in well-lit areas. Okay, and everybody hopefully will be safe this Halloween weekend. Yes, with the help of God, Michael. So, uh, unfortunately this is the time of year for fireworks to uh, to uh, rear its ugly head again and, and we've had many calls in the Trim District for the relation to fireworks and, uh, and noise disturbances. So it's very important to note that fireworks can cause damage to property, injuries and distress to the elderly or vulnerable as well as being very distressing for pets and other animals. So it's important to note that igniting an illegal firework, throwing an ignited firework at a person or property and possessing illegal fireworks with intent to sell or supply are all criminal offences. So we advise don't risk your own safety or the safety of others and don't risk getting a criminal record. And Angarda is urging the public to enjoy Halloween safely and not to engage in this illegal activity whatsoever. Absolutely. Uh, for everybody's sake, we've already seen uh, tragedy, really, with life-changing injuries in Air Square in Galway from a, a firework for a young woman this year. But thank you indeed, Garda Patrick Gill of Trim Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's our programme for today and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.